Um, wonderful. All right. Uh, let's go to my next slide. What have I got? Uh, okay. So we're looking at our, our history, our heritage, our culture, and our values. And uh, if you go to the next slide, we're looking at what waves we ride as a church. And, and again, I've got a, a different message again this morning, um, but I hope it's going to bless you. I believe it's from God. Um, but what we've looked at so far is that we're best as a church when we're living with a powerful sense of the outpouring of God's spirit, that we're, when we're living in revived teams. So if you've been around, you'll know we've adjusted from departments to do, that do tasks and connect groups that uh, might just stay in homes. And everybody now has a bit of a sense of purpose, a bit of a sense of community, a bit of sense of reaching the lost together. So you don't have to be in eight teams to do everything a Christian needs to do. It, everywhere we are, we'll be doing all of that together. So living in revived teams, giving ourselves to discipleship, uh, learning, uh, life in circles, service and outreach. And you can listen back through the podcast if you've missed any, missed any of those. They're free on iTunes and free with our church app. And then last week, a church after God's own heart, pioneering, obedient worshippers. I enjoyed last week. There was something on last week. And in fact, halfway through this morning's, we're going to reference back to something that came out uh, last week and I think was a significant uh, something from God. Uh, but we're, we're going to dive in. I'm going to start this morning um, really panoramic, okay? You'll find if you go to um, someone like John in the Bible, he is the one that always likes to start with these huge panoramic views that, to be honest, are too much for someone, but he always loves the stuff like, in the beginning, God, you know? And, and, and he has all of these huge sweeping statements that some will go, well, I, I just need it to get a bit more nitty gritty and personal. Uh, and John certainly does get that way and we're going to do one of those messages it's going to start in the panoramic but then by the end it's going to get oh so personal are you looking forward to it thank you um, good so let's uh, let's look at the next slide see what we got can you see mark 8 17 aware of their discussion the disciples are obviously uh, chatting away being dull again and jesus asked them why are you talking about having no bread it's not really about bread do you not see or understand are your hearts hardened? Uh, notice the connection between seeing and a hardening of the heart. When we harden our hearts, we fail to see. Leprosy is that condition where you become dulled and you can't feel yourself injure yourself. And uh, who, who doesn't want to be that? Right. Uh, and I'm not talking about the physical sickness. I'm talking about spiritually. And there are some people that wade through life injuring themselves. And it doesn't happen on purpose. It's not because people are, you know, thick, stupid, whatever. It's at somewhere along the line we harden our hearts. Um, psychology has taught us this, and this can happen to people that go through some kind of trauma or disappointment, that often if we go through something difficult, we will then try to numb that area because I don't want to feel it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to go there. But uh, it's been shown that when you dull one area of your life, it dulls every other. You can't just dull a compartment. And so when you harden in one area, because I don't want to go there, I don't want God to go there, I don't want to go there, I want to pretend that never happened, it wasn't ever there. What happens is slowly your life becomes numb and your worship becomes numb and your listening to God becomes numb and your devotion for the things of God becomes numb. Your ability to see spiritually becomes numb because you cannot numb a single area of your life without it numbing the rest of you eventually. And so it's really important that we remain soft-hearted cooperative with God, even through the very real 
uh, pains and difficulties of life. Amen. And, and that's a journey. I, I really get that in some cases with things that go on. But it's the connection there. Do you not see? Seeing is really important. When Jeremiah came along, he gave him an eye test. If you're going to be a prophet, what do you see? What do you see? What do you see? I had an eye test a little while ago. Now then, look, I've got my better glasses out now. Are you ready for these? If I can get them off, ready. Hang on. Trap there. Go. Thanks, Mum. My mum said, oh, wow, what's wrong with the rest of you? Come on, oh, wow. You know, say it backwards, wow. I think I look sophisticated. And so these are my uh, clever glasses. So I'm going to say something intelligent. In fact, I should have done the bit about psychology. I should have gone, so psychology tells us. That, uh, so they're my clever glasses uh, for when I need them. Um, we've got to be able to see accurately. In life, Can you see where you're at? I don't want to start in the massive panoramic and I want to put a question to you that most of the room are going to go, uh, do you know where you are at in world history right now? Do you understand where you are at as a person on the planet with God's moving and maneuvering of people? Because if you could see that, the Bible says, number your days aright, that you may gain a heart of wisdom. Know where you're at. Know where the number of your days is. Have a wisdom about the strategy of your life. Why? Because it's so easy to waste time, to waste years. But thankfully, we have a God who says, I'll restore the years the locust has eaten. I'll restore what the enemy stole. I'll restore what's been taken away. All right. And um, uh, that's, that's our God. Where are you at in church? Are you ready for a bit of a chart? I better put my glasses on for this bit are you ready we're going this is ready for the science bit right here we go let's do the next slide i think it's it what look at that i did that for you am i up wow your place in world history now what you'll see from a lovely book that Stuart recommended me so obviously you know you you read this stuff you study it that's the part of what i have to do to be able to give you good stuff and um you if you go through church history uh, and right back through biblical history, you will see that every 500 years, something incredibly significant happens in the world, in God's dealing with humanity. So I see you're all looking at that end. Don't, no, come this end. Come back to Abraham with me. Stop trying to work it out before I've got there. I know what you're like. So now you could go back further, but I've stopped at Abraham because that's as wide as the screen will go, all right? Um, and so we'll, we'll start with Abraham. Now, if you know your Bible, you're going to know that these characters are more significant in a sense of the turning point of God's dealing with man than any other people in the Bible. They are the significant ones. Now, it isn't an exact on the dot, you know, Christmas Day happened uh, 4,000 years ago and suddenly it all changed. No, it's like the moving of a great battleship that has big slow turns in the sea. But you will find that every 500 years, there's a significant change in how God deals with his people or in the lifespan and the history of his people in various ways. And so we go back to 2,000 years before Christ. That's when Abraham came on the scene, who is the father of faith. Galatians tells us that the gospel was announced to Abraham. It's not amazing that Abraham knew the gospel. He got it because he was the man that realized it wasn't going to be about behavior. It was going to be about faith. Faith is the thing that's going to change you. And then 500 years passes and we find Moses comes on the scene. The children of Israel are in Egypt. So now starts the huge symbolic and powerful and actual for them, of course, release from the trappings of the world. Their baptism through the Red Sea, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're coming into the full promises of God. Yeah. And so Moses coming on the scene was a significant turning point in the life of the church, 
Uh, well, not the church, the people of God. Then you go 500 years after that and you find the one we were learning about last week, very significant figure. Jesus came along. They called him the son of David. Even the people in the street said son of David. Uh, uh, so David comes along with his heart for worship, with his pioneering ability, with his creating a new normal, with his heart to build a temple for God, which he didn't, but he created the plan and the next generation built it. David was this significant man. Then go 500 years after that, the people of Israel, Israel were exiled and you get all the Babylonian adventures and you read some of the amazing prophets like Daniel and things like that during that whole period. 500 years later, the most significant one, yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus came on the scene. The Romans had come in 60, 70, 80 years before that uh, and, and uh, come into Israel. So that's why, you see how clever God is? God gets these Romans in, lets them occupy Jerusalem. Why? Because they're great road builders. He's about to send his gospel across the world. So who shall I let take over Jerusalem? Road builders. Yep. And even now you're driving on a, on a straight one and dads, come on, what dads in the car don't go, ooh, family, must be a Roman road. <laughs> come on, we all do it. Why? Because we know. It's the equivalent of the internet age. Yep. He puts people there that write, how can we send this gospel quickly around the world? So Paul would write, everyone in Asia has heard the gospel. Yeah. Um, it's because of the Roman Empire. So there comes Jesus. 500 years later, after blazing revival and God moving, begins the Dark Ages. And you have a thousand years with the depth of the Dark Ages, a thousand AD. You have a thousand years when religion became a political uh, elitist thing, part of the state's way of controlling people, where there, there were no Bibles for normal people to read. Uh, 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 priests uh, would essentially talk about indulgences, pay me some money and you can be forgiven of your sins. I mean, it was in this era, if someone spoke in tongues, it was documented as a historical event. Today, there are hundreds of millions who speak in tongues every day. Yeah. But in those days, in that dark age, there were uh, hardly any moving of the Holy Spirit. And there was uh, it, essentially religion became part of the political elite. So you became a Christian to gain power. But of course, whenever that happens in history, real Christianity loses power. Yeah. Yeah. Careful what you pray for. You know, state religion can be the worst thing in the world for, for a place. What you want is passionate people that are getting born again for all the right reasons and having true experiences of God. Then look at this. Understand your place now in history. 500 years ago, in fact, on the 31st of October, 1517. The 31st of October, 1517. So a little over a year from now. A guy called Luther, Martin Luther came, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther came along and he came and stood against all the politicized Catholicism that had stripped the true heart out of Christianity for a thousand years. And he nailed on that day his 95 theses, his questions and proposals about what real Christianity should be about. And essentially understand this, until 500 years ago, you wouldn't have grasped this. You wouldn't have sat in a room like this and understood this. They, they had completely lost the fact that it is by faith that you are saved. It is a gift of grace. You can know God. And Luther came and he restored the concept. It is by faith in God that I am saved. It is a work of grace. I, we got to do something on the 31st of October, 2017. Yeah. That's exactly yeah. 500 years later. Yeah. 
You see, I want you to understand you are living 500 years after the beginning of restoration. That a restoration began 500 years ago that has given you Christianity as you know it today. Forget the news reporting on, on, uh, on state religions. Actually, Christianity is alive and growing and on fire and in missions and turning the world upside down. There are revivals going on around the world. There are more people being raised from the dead than ever. There are more miracles even in our own lives than ever. God is on the move in the world. There's been an incredible restoration across these last 500 years. And you actually sit at the threshold of one of those 500s right now. Understand where you live in world history. There, there should be, you can go back thousands of years and show, well, round about now, there should be something incredibly significant taking place in the life of the church and the people of God around the globe. Because God has always worked like that and he will work like that again. There's something in the air. There's divine debris, there's divine information, there's divine wisdom. The last thing you want to be right now is dull and hardened so you can't see. Why? Because this is a moment. If, if, if I was speaking 250 years from now, I'd say, eh, carry on. But right now I'm saying, <laughs> open your eyes because every other time in history, God has given something fresh and significant. In particular, the last 500 years, which is what this little... This little piece here, I'll just take this down in case any of you can't see it. You see the arrow at the bottom? That's, that's the last 500 years. This rise in the restoration of the church. Acts 3.21 says this, For he, that's Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. There has been, historians would say, a restoration taking place for 500 years. It began with Luther saying, no, it isn't state religion. It isn't paying penance. It is faith in God that saves you. And let me tell you, it might have not have been the days of the internet, but he nailed it to that church door and it was like a ripple, a, a wave went through the church and suddenly you get Protestants who are protesting against the control of what was a very corrupt Catholic church. Then waves of God restoring different truths that you think are normal, but you might not know why. You just think, well, they must have carried on since the book of Acts. No, they disappeared for a thousand years. And you are tongue-talking, healing, saved by faith because of a wave of restoration after wave of restoration these last 500 years. And you sit right now at a significant development in church on the earth. So you get Luther and the Protestants. And then a little while later, people like Wesley come along, the holiness movement. They essentially said, yes, it's by faith, but that faith will lead to sanctification. My life will be changed. The country was, was in a mess in Great Britain. Uh, uh, the, the, the poor were drinking and gambling it away. But Wesley came along to say, it's by faith in Christ, but that faith in Christ will change you. It's real. It will, it will outwork with holiness. And so the poor people stopped spending their money on drinking and gambling and became the middle classes. It created the middle class because suddenly poor people realized I'm saved by faith, but now I will live with a method that helps my sanctification. Thus you get Methodists. Okay, but it was, it was a, a move of revival. It was another wave sent from heaven. You'll always find these key characters usually coming from key obscure places that bring a fresh truth. So suddenly the holiness movement came on the scene. Wesley, uh, Whitfield, um, 
Then you get the Pentecostals and the latter rain movement. About a hundred years ago, suddenly now you get the Welsh revival, you get Azusa Street. Now, all of this went on and no one was speaking in tongues. Then a hundred years ago, the restoration of all things, it was there in the book of Acts, but it hadn't been in the church. It just hadn't been in the world. A hundred years ago, God says again, right, now the next wave of restoration. And suddenly tongue talking explodes. People get filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's not only saved by faith. It's not only that will affect my conduct. Now it becomes I'm empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit to do this. And suddenly there's tongue. Now, of course, every fresh move gets rejected by the one before. But every fresh move builds on the one before. This is why you've got all of these movements in you because they've been restored in the last 500 years. So the Holy Spirit is poured out. There's the laying on of hands. Worship completely transforms and we begin to sing joyful songs and experience his presence and sense atmosphere of the power of God in services. Then only um, 50 years ago, the charismatics come on the scene. And suddenly now there's the other gifts of the Spirit beginning to operate in a greater way than ever before. Healings and miracles like never before. Then listen, I'm going right up now on the end there to the 80s. Anybody experience the 80s? Raise your hand if you experienced the 80s. Raise your hand if you did not experience the 80s. Right, leave the room, all of you. We don't like you. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. I mean, you get as far as the charismatics, you will find that they had pastors, teachers, and evangelists, but nobody was talking about apostles and prophets. And you might think that's weird, but if you're old enough, you'll remember we didn't talk about it. People talk about me being apostolic all the time now. If they'd have said that 40 years ago, they would have gone, oh, you're up yourself. Do you know what I mean? Do you think you are? Right? That's what... But now, in the 80s, there was a wave of the prophetic. And suddenly, people bringing accurate prophetic words, a rise of the prophet in the world yes. began to happen. And then in the 90s, the rise of the apostolic, suddenly there was a sense of church planting and moves of God and missions again in a different kind of way. And the, ap the apostle became recognized. Now, this is all about this. I want you to see what time you're in. 500 years of waves of restoration. Now turn in your Bible to, I haven't got it actually. So if you haven't got your Bible, I'll just read it to you. I haven't got it on the screen, but it's Ephesians 4. And it says this, Ephesians 4, 11, so Christ gave apostles, and they were, again, restored in the last two or three decades. Prophets restored the last two or three decades. Evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip God's people for works of service. That's why they're restored. Listen really carefully. Why? So the body of Christ, the church, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, and listen to this, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and listen to this, and become mature, say mature. mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Say the fullness of Christ. The result of this restoration, where we've got to is this. The church should be becoming mature and living in the fullness of Christ. Yeah. Raising the dead, impacting society, turning communities upside down. In the book of Acts, half the time it was good, the other half it was riots. I mean, there was something on the church. And here it says, when you get the apostles and the prophets, as well as the pastors, teachers, and the evangelists operating properly, something will happen. The church will be just like Christ in the world. 
Who wants to be just like Christ? Listen, I want you to understand it's in the air. You you are living in that moment when uh, all these ministries and these moves, the sense of faith, the sense of holiness, the sense of the outpouring of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then the Christ gifts of apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist have been restored. What's left to do? Well, according to that scripture, become the fullness of Christ in the world. Where are you at in history? You're at a time when the power to walk in the fullness of Christ is available. Somebody somewhere should whisper, wow. And then somebody should say, can I see it? Or am I a dull Christian not even knowing that 500 years ago, all I'd have done is walk into a confessional, confess to a priest, given some money, hope it cut down my sins, get ready for the fact that I'm probably going to do some penance and some purgatory. And that was religion. It was dark. But now the power of Christ is available. It is the age of the church. It is the age. God said, I want a radiant church without spot or wrinkle. I expect the glory of the Lord to cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. I expect my glory to impact and transform society. He says the ministry of the Spirit will be even more glorious than Moses experienced. I'm moving from glory to glory. And the last 500 years have been glory, 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 growing precept upon precept. Let me nick another one from my dad. The Jewish day is evening, starts in the evening, doesn't start in the morning, it's evening, night and day. That's how the Jews do a day. You with me? Everybody say with me, evening, Evening. night Night. and day, Day. right? Jesus and the early church was actually just evening. Then they went into a thousand years of night. Now we're going towards the full light of day. Somebody say, wow. Wow. See, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn growing ever brighter to the full light of day. Where are you at in history? I'm in a season, in an era when we should begin to outdo what the early church saw. There should be more happening in my life, more miracles available, more faith available, more more people raising the, the dead, more people impacting governments and society. There'll be transformation in the royal family, transformation in the media, transformation in politics. Why? That is the era that we're living in. Wilbur force was the beginning of the restoration now we're coming to the end of the restoration we're walking into the era of fullness in Christ somebody say yabba dabba do so what do you do with all that so we've gone macro you're ready now to come right down what do I do with that because I, I love this scripture live a life worthy of the calling you've received That's not just what he's told you to do. Listen carefully. It's when he's told you to do it. God chose to give birth to you there. At the turning point of one of the restorations in history. He chose that you would come onto the planet when Christ was about to turn his church into a full expression of Christ on the earth. What do I do with that? How do I live a life worthy of that? Well, give us the next slide. This is the scripture that did me in a little bit. I didn't really tell you about it last week, but I thought, oh, that's quite a scripture. Anybody else think that? After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse. In other words, God said quite clearly, because remember, he said of the older son, I've rejected him. 
So God didn't just in heaven go, I'll give birth to David and David will do it. it the Bible is quite clear. God searched and found David. And when they saw the other sons, God said, no, I've rejected him. In other words, I've looked at him and said, no. I've looked at him and said, no. I've looked at him and said, no. David's the man after my own heart. And this is why I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And here's the toughest of all the three things we looked at last week. He will do everything I want him to do. Here's my question to you this morning in response to your place in history. Will you do everything he's told you to do? You know, sometimes roughly right is okay, but there's other times that God says, no, exactly right is the only thing I'm asking for. Roughly right will not do. I've been, God's been talking to me about readjustment lately and, you know, watching, anybody watch any of the Olympics? And you, you, you see the archery and they, 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 they hold the arrow um, pointing at the target. And, you know, sometimes it feels like, God, I've been in this blooming bow for ages. When are you going to release me? Anybody ever feel like that? You only get released when you're on target. Until then, we're actually trying to make sure, because roughly right won't do. Exactly right. Why won't I release this to you and that to you? Because you're not quite aimed right yet. You're not truly as clean as you think you are. You're lazier than you think you are. You're lazy in your attitudes. And in fact, sometimes after a while goes, let's just rest that a bit, because I'm not going to hold you there forever. And let's try again. And in the case of the children of Israel, he tried to aim them at the promised land, couldn't get them to aim and said, let's rest a 40-year generation, kill that lot off and try again. Sometimes you left waiting because you're not responding. This is a season of divine readjustment. Living in the last 10, 20 years, the relationships of, the style of, the people of, the expectation of, you'll miss it. A hard heart doesn't see what God's doing, but a wise heart goes, God, give me the readjustments. And so I've been living with that, that scripture going, oh, will I do, anybody find it challenging? <laughs> will, will I do everything? Let's be honest. We're quite happy to do some. Anybody with me? Yeah. The good bits. Yeah. Right? And then uh, my, 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 my follow-on question to that really is, does anybody ever chat to God using their imagination rather than just language? I do it. Anybody else do it? I use my imagination to converse with God all the time. And you know that, that scripture, in my father's house, uh, many mansions, yeah. right? It'll also be translated, if you've got another version of the Bible, it says, in my father's house, in many rooms. Yeah. Do you know that scripture? And so I think, well, I, I'm built in God's image. I wonder if in me there's lots of rooms. And I've discovered that, well, in my head there is. And I go visit those rooms with God sometimes. Anybody ever go around the rooms? I say, uh, hey, God, how am I doing? And he says to me, just come and have a look at the prayer room for a minute. And I'm, you know, and he's, the door's a bit stuck, Jared. Have you been in here for a while? Have you been turning over in bed again? We need to get this door open. Because I've decided this, I want God in every room in my house. I don't want a dark corner anywhere. Because a man after his own heart does everything. Everything, 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 everything he wants him to do. So I go through the rooms in my, should I tell you about some of the rooms I've been through with God in my, in my, well, some of them are in the top floor, some of them are on the bottom. I go to the, the service room. You serve me. So Jared, uh, let's, just, let's just pop in this room. Can you put the next slide up? So will you, 
just pop in this room. It's got how you serve me written on the door. So, Jared, um, are you just doing what you like to do? Is destiny self-fulfillment and self-actualization or is it service? Have you read too many positive thinking books and done a few two, sem few two seminars about fulfilling the dream and not enough about Jared, obey me, yeah. serve me? Are you cheered up yet? Sacrifice. <laughs> and I go, God, you know, a lot of what I do is self-fulfillment and self-actualization, which is actually ego. And nothing stinks to you like pride. And so there, in that little room, in my heart, I fall on my knees and I say, I'm sorry. Done it all for the wrong reasons. I want to serve you, but I want to serve you as an act of worship. Not because it makes me feel good. I want to do it because I'm on the earth a short season when I have the opportunity for this house to worship you from every corridor within. I want to serve you. I want to sacrifice. I understand people that want to follow God and not sacrifice. You know, I've lived years without wages. And it's funny how it can come to you eventually where you're like, you know, you're, you're funny. With in, in money, a powerful thing. So there's another room. He takes me to a room and on it, it says money. And I go, oh, no, I don't want to go in that room. Do you let God in your money room? Wesley, no, he's not up there anymore, but Wesley used to say, you know, saved is great, but your pocketbook, as he would put it, needs to get saved. When God is in your pocketbook, that's when you're in revival. In other words, when I get your money, do you let God in your money room? Or do you go, no, I let him in the forgive me room. I let him in the make me feel less guilty room. I let him in the, oh, isn't praise and worship fun room. And I, I let him in that I do the things I like doing, but I'm not going to let him in the money room. He's not Lord of your life then. So we creak open the door to the money room and pensions and savings and all, you know, the value in your house and all the stuff that you've accumulated to you. And you go, oh, God, don't tell me to touch that. No, la, 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 la. I worship you, almighty God, until the offering comes. I worship you, oh, Prince of Peace. But don't make me write a check for anyway. Is he Lord of your money? Here's my question. Do you really trust him to give you the best life you could ever have? Or are there parts of you that go, no, I'm going to make that area numb because I'm scared of what he might say. Now, that signifies that you don't think he's a good father. Everything is being revealed. So I get to the money room and I open it. I go, God. It's all yours. I, 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 it would sting, but if you say give it all away, I will give it all away. It's yours. If you, if you say downsize, if you say upsize, I'm with you. If you say downsize, I'm still with you. It's yours. If you say sell and move to another country, it's yours. Just not, oh no, I won't say it because that's the one you'll make me go to. <laughs> what about the, the room of... Obeying the still small voice inside. <laughs> I sat in a taxi the other day and uh, 
the taxi driver is telling me how ill his wife is and I'm sitting there going, I'm really just, I'm about to go preach somewhere. I'm like, I'm really not in the mood to do, do the gospel thing. And inside God's just going, <laughs> so then, you know, I just, just got to gotta go for it and start talking to the guy. But I've had loads of times when you, anybody where you kind of go, just keep that door closed. Keep Jesus out of that room. I just want a normal day of work. Are you letting him into the rooms of your life? Because you're important. You've been born at an important time. You could be part of something that changes history or like people that were around the Welsh revival. They were so dull to it. Why? There's some rooms I just want to numb and pretend. You're not going to talk to me about that. But what you don't know is it locks every other room in your life. What about my love? He takes me to a room with love written on the door. So, Jared, are you loving? Yes! Yeah! I quite like even people that are horrible to me. Really, he says. And then he says, so, look at this filing cabinet. First drawer, love is patient. Should we get the file out? Everybody with kids at home this summer said, shut up. Love is patient. You're going to let me in that drawer? Love is kind, does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, it doesn't dishonor others, it's not rude or self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. I get to that drawer and go, oh, there's quite a lot in that drawer. He says, well, you're not letting me in that room then, are you? Jared, are you significant or not? Well, it sounds proud to say I'm significant. Well, when have I allowed you to be born in history? Do I give birth to anything that isn't significant at the end of the day? I'm looking for people after my own heart. Jared, no record of wrongs. Well, I forgive them. I forgive them and I won't ever bring it up. Right. So, Jared, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. I forgive them. I just won't go near them. I'd save them if they were drowning, but I'm not going to go out of my way. And God goes, that's not love. Do we let him in every room? Because Romans 8 says he's, he is committed to making me like Jesus. Jesus who hung on a cross and uttered. He would not go to his next venture without uttering forgiveness. And he vocalized forgiveness immediately to the people that brutalized him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Wow. And so I fall on my knees in the love room and go, God, no, I'm not very loving. Well, you know what all this stuff is called, don't you? Repentance. You know, indifference isn't love. God said, love your enemies. They strike your cheek, you offer them the other one. So then all of us go, (laughs) who can do that? Which is what the disciples were saying. I can't do that. Well, let me into the rooms inside. Let me come right, because if, if, you, if you really are taking this journey, Jared, let me in that room called How I Love Others, and let me make you 1 Corinthians 13. If not, well, lock that door, throw away the key, and live with the numbness. Wow. I've got loads more. Do you want them all? No. They're saying, no, time's running out. Thank goodness the one good reason for being in the cinema, time's running out. My fear room. 
I got a big room called fear. Anybody? <laughs> and I can hear inside demons. Because ah! faith attracts heaven and fear attracts demons. So I'm like, here's the fear room, anxiety, worry. Ah! You can hear them. It sounds a bit mad in there. I don't want to open that one. That's crazy. Uh, we fear. We, we, we sweat in the middle of the night. And, yeah. and uh, God says, well, you know the whole issue with this room. It's because you don't think I love you. Because mm. matured love drives out all that stuff. You don't actually think I'm going to provide for you and heal you and take care of you and give you the best possible life you could have. That's why you want a ticket to heaven. You want to be forgiven. So you stick with me in this, but you have to open the other rooms and become like Christ. And I can do it, Jared, if you will trust that I am a good father. Let me into your fear room. And I'm not going to whack you around the head to solve it. That's exactly what you think I'm going to do. That's why you don't open the room. If you open the room and saw the love of the prodigal son's father wrapping his arms around and saying, I have parental affection and love and passion for you. I'm going to take care. I'm going to give you the best life possible. If I tell you to give everything up, it's because I've got more behind my back than you could ever give up. I'm a good, good father. I've even given you promises. If you give up homes and family and careers for me, I will bless you in this life and the next. Next. But I'm looking for someone who will give everything to me. Not roughly right, exactly right. Grace is not a ticket to roughly right. Grace is the power to live exactly right. Then I go to a room marked shame. Anybody got a shame room? Come on, you lie awake at night and go, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. Oh, God. Oh, God. And he says to me, come on, then let's go in. Let's have a look at the shame room. And I open the door. And I remember this one vividly. I opened the door. And actually, he wasn't stood next to me any longer. He was stood in front of me, bright with glory. And he just said to me, this room's empty. So what, 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 what? He says, yeah, I keep no record of wrongs. This room is bright white and empty no record of wrongs you're forgiven you're forgiven don't fear opening the shame door there's nothing there often the shame door leads to the last one that I'll say this morning the door of brokenness and you think there's areas of hurt and pain where you don't want to go and I've stood at the door to the room marked brokenness and hurt and trauma and all those things. And I say to God, God, I don't really want to open this door. Would you go in for me? <laughs> and uh, I just felt God say, you don't need to go in. Just give me the room. You don't need to go back there in your mind and travel there again in your psyche and visit it again and walk through it with Jesus. Just give me the room. Just give me your broken heart and I'll pull that room right out of your foundation and put a worship room in its place. Just give me your brokenness. Don't hide it. Don't try and be numb to it. If all you can utter every day, if it takes a year or two or a month or two, just say every day, I give you where I'm bruised and I give you my broken heart and I give you what I ache over and I give you the things that 
that hurt me and I don't even understand why, but I refuse to live broken. I'm going to live worshipful. And you give him your room of brokenness. But what you don't do is say, well, I'll shove it deep down inside and pretend it never happened. No, I say, God, I give it to you. And I lay it on the altar as an act of worship. And, and, and I put my room of disappointment there too. I don't understand what went on. I'm disappointed in God. Well, give it to me and just confess again. I'm the Lord of time. I'm the Lord of your destiny. I'm a good father. And I promise if you walk with me, I have plans to prosper you, not to give you harm, but to give you a hope and a future. Put your disappointment on the altar. Worship before God and say, God, I let you into the room of my disappointment. I don't understand why that happened or what went wrong, but I will worship you. I will be better, not bitter. I give it to you. And I go through these rooms with God quite regularly. And there's a lot more rooms than that. And I say, God, I don't want a single dark room in my life. I want the bright white glory of your grace and your mercy to flood every single room. I want to do everything he asks me to do. The only way for me to do that is to give him every room in this house and say, God, I believe I am at a significant point in history. I must not treat myself with insignificance and sloppiness and roughly right will do. No, just like Moses, I want to build it exact to the pattern of heaven so that your glory can rest here. Let's stand quietly in God's presence. Phil, would you play for us? I didn't expect to go on so long. I hope.